Mirror, mirror on the wall, said that evil queen in the fairy tale Snow White. Who is the fairest of them all? Of course, we all are that queen to a degree. We are asking the question, who am I? We're looking into the mirror and we want to know how we compare or stack up to this person or that. We always are concerned with what is our status as believers in God in this nation? Am I growing the way I should? Because I think they are a lot more holy than me. We ask a lot of questions about who we are and we look for mirrors that will tell us honestly and truthfully who we are. Although sometimes we're looking for mirrors that will lie to us and say, you're wonderful, you're perfect. And see, we wonder, who am I? Who is Brandon? Who is he? Who is she? Who are they? And what society often has told us is that we are hardly more than monkeys. And if we accept that, it's going to be... Well, it's going to be hard to find much confirmation or affirmation or validity in our lives. See, we all want confirmation and validation. We want it from somewhere authoritative, and we should find that validation in God. God should be the mirror to whom we're looking to find out, Who am I? Am I doing things well? Am I growing properly? Is he pleased? And so Psalm 8 gives us a mirror to gauge ourselves with. So we read in the title of Psalm 8, To the choir master, according to the gittith. We, again, have no idea. These are just musical terms. So it may be according to a prior tune, which, by the way, some of our greatest hymns were to the tune of bar songs back in the day. If I remember right, A Mighty Fortress is Our God was a German bar song Martin Luther attached to. So who knows where it came from, but Psalm 8 is based upon a tune. And it's a Psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Or that could read and probably means you've set your glory in the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you care for him? And yet, or you can imply yet, uh, and yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Where does prayer lead us? We follow David up to Psalm 8. Remember Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Five Psalms. We've seen David on the run. He's been fleeing Jerusalem where he was the king. He leaves his crown. He leaves his throne. He leaves everything that he's become and walks the great descent out of Jerusalem into the wilderness because his son, Absalom, thinks that he would be a better king. And so we've been following David on the run for five psalms. And finally, the run comes to a stop in Psalm 8. The five David on the run psalms are over. And hasn't these five David on the run psalms been us? 
We've been running from COVID. We've been running from one news report to another. We've been running from I think I get it to I don't get it. We've been running from God's in control to I'm so angry at everything. We've been running back and forth. This is real. No, it's a hoax. Everywhere we look, people are going this way or that way or another way altogether or like a dog chasing his tail in circles. We are a people on the run. It's been chaos There's been little room to breathe, to rest, to stretch out. But David has come to the end of his run. Because he has prayed and praised his way through one of the darkest times of his life. So we now find him in one of the most glorious times of his life. In Psalm 8, for the first time, We don't see David crying out, God, what are you doing to me? Or please deal with them. Yes, enemies are mentioned, but only in verse 2 for the sake of saying that God's got it handled. There's no panic. There's no pain. There's no pandemonium in David's prayer here. It's like we've reached the promised land, if you will. And so we ask the question, where does prayer lead? And we see that David has prayed and praised his way all the way through Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And he's found himself in the praise and the pleasure and getting lost in the goodness of God that we find in Psalm 8. Let's recap a little bit. David finds out Absalom's coming. He goes into the wilderness, Psalm 3. He's disoriented. He finds himself at the extreme edge of life. He's had to give up the crown. He's lost a lot. He's suffering. He's afraid to sleep because he's not sure if he's going to die. It's a pretty bad place. But in Psalm 3, we saw that prayer recenters David in God, whom he calls my shield, my glory. So prayer gives us a reorientation when life knocks you over and you don't know which way is up and which way is straight. Prayer is reorientation. In Psalm 4, we find David's evening prayer. It's the prayer of examination. Lord, I'm on my couch. Please, I'm angry, but help me not to sin in my anger. He's letting God look at his life. Examination, a good evening prayer. Psalm 5. The morning prayer. He rises and says, Lord, to you, I'm laying out the pieces of my life, my prayer, my, I'm a sacrifice to you. I'm laying them out on your altar and I'm waiting, I'm watching. And this is what happens in contemplation is we're directing our gaze on God. Examinations, him looking at us. Contemplations, us examining him, looking at him, contemplating his greatness. So David finds in prayer reorientation, examination, contemplation. In chapter 6, we find confession, where it seems like his guilt and his shame and his grief is all catching up to him. And yet he there weeps on his bed. He says he floods his bed with his tears every night. And we see that in confession, you find the kind of prayer that is subtraction. You're giving yourself to God saying, I've done all of this. I'm pouring out my grief to you because in subtraction, we create space for his grace. And Psalm 6 ends with David receiving God's grace. And in Psalm 7, last week, David is slandered by this guy named Shimei. And instead of throwing his hurt, grief, and pain back on Shimei, He throws it up to God in prayer and is able to instead give grace and forgiveness and the love of God to Shimei. So Psalm 7 tells us, look, prayer is surrender. You don't have to avenge the world anymore. You're giving it to God. So we've seen David's journey. And now we come to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is where prayer leads This idea of creation, this idea of dominion over creation, this question, who is man or what is man that you would care for us? Friends, prayer will show us not only who God is, and first and foremost it does that, 
but prayer will also confirm to us who we are. Because prayer gives us focus on God, it's as if God becomes a mirror and in him we see his love and pleasure for his creation in us. And we discover this is who we are and we can relax. We don't have to be continually on the run because now that I outran Absalom, I got to run back up to the throne and prove to everyone that I'm great and I deserve a crown and everybody should like me. Please like me. Sadly, I hear a Christianity today that is pleading with the world to like them. Jesus didn't plead for anyone to like him. The early church didn't plead for anyone to like them. We need to know who we are in God's eyes because the proper mirror of who we are is our father in prayer, not Oh, society, society on the wall. What do you think of us? Because it will always tell us, oh, there's a fairer one than you. And it will send you on the run again. (gasps) We're Snow White, find her. We got to be like her. What we see in Psalm 8, and please don't mishear me here. What we see in Psalm 8 is the concept of original blessing. God blessed humanity and wanted humanity to rule over his creation. What we often do is we take St. Augustine's work and we take a lot of the Puritans' work and Calvinists have really harped on it too about original sin. And we often start with the viewpoint, who am I? I'm a sinner. I'm awful. You are. I am. We are sinners. We are awful. And original sin is true. And it's a doctrine that we teach. It's a doctrine that the Bible seems to teach. That we are inherently sinful. We don't have to be taught how to sin. That's what original sin means. But please do not start with your concept of who am I? What is humanity? Why are we here? Please do not answer that question with, well, I'm originally a sinner. Because we're not. We're sinners because of the fall, but God originally made you and I in his image to bear his image. He created us not because there was a lack in himself, not because God said, well, Trinity, what are we going to do with all this space? We need a sofa here. And so he created stuff. That's not us. We're not furniture in the cosmos to sort of dampen the hollow of God's loneliness. He created us not out of need, not out of some lack, not out of some absence, but the complete reverse. He created us out of the abundance of who he is because he is so overflowing with satisfaction, with love, with joy, with glory and praise that he wanted people to be part of it. He didn't create us just to see, oh, who's going to love me and who's not. He created us so that he could pour his goodness and love into us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the interpersonal God has been pouring his love into himself. Son into the Father, Father into the Son, Son into the Spirit, Spirit into the Son, Spirit into the Father, Father into the Spirit. Forever and ever, this flow, this cycle, this relationship, this abundance, this joy has been going on in an unending cycle, a rhythm, a dance, a flow that God said, we must share this beauty and glory with others. So they create, God creates a universe and he puts you and I in the center of it so that we could be swallowed up into this rhythm, this dance, this flow. But many will resist this. We push God's love away. I'm not good enough yet. I'm not worthy of it yet. Or we're constantly running wherever the mirror mirror tells us to go or tells us what to pursue. The whole time, God has been pouring. He's been cascading his being into the universe. 
And we stubbornly refuse to open up and see it. Original blessing. David looks up. David sees that God is enamored with him and he can't believe it. Let's look at it again, and then I'm going to take you to two passages. O Lord, this first one, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, what you're going to see is your, talked about seven times, your name, second line of verse one, you have set your glory above the heavens. So you see your name, your glory, and it's going to go on. Verse three, your heavens, your fingers, in verse six, the works of your hands. And in verse 9, it repeats verse 1. How majestic, how majestic is your name. So what's the emphasis here? In the first five Psalms of David's help, it's been the emphasis on me, I need rescue. And my enemies, they're bad. And then God's kind of like, I need you because I'm in trouble. But this Psalm 8, the emphasis is all on your work, your fingers, your glory. God's the emphasis. Also, the Hebrew for your name in verse 1 is Shem. I'm pointing this out because I want you to see the poetry we miss out in English. Um, verse 1, your name is Shem. And in verse 3, your heavens is Sham. So Shem to Sham. Now your heavens is longer. It's Shem Mahim. Shem Mahim. But you hear the play on words going on there? Your name, Shem. Your heavens, Sham, Yamin. So there's this, there's a sound alike where God's name sounds like his heavens. And uh, one commentator said this. The point of this is the heavens spell out the name of God. Isn't that cool? The heavens are spelling out the name of God. Who is he, David's wondering? Who has he been to me? He sees in the creation, in the cosmos and the universe. There is his fingerprints, his handiwork. Here is his name. It is speaking to us who he is. And so David is caught up in wonder. And so here's this majestic God. But in verse 2, I I wrote, um, just to help, see the contrast, I wrote, and yet, right above verse 2. So God's majestic, his glory's in the heavens, and yet, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. <laughs> God's put his glory on display in majestic, incomprehensible ways that science is still just on the the, the beginning of understanding how the universe works. It's so beyond us. And yet, God has put his strength, or his praise is another way it can read. He's put his strength, his praise, in babies. You would think that this great glorious God is like, oh yeah, I want the great glorious humans to demonstrate my might. No. He puts it in the weaklings. Read you, me, us. He puts it... As 1 Corinthians will say, God has confounded the wisdom of this world by using the foolish. He's confounded the strong by using the weak. And he came as a suffering servant, not as the royal ruler in Jesus. This is how God works. Very surprising. He is mighty. And we want to say almighty God. And yet, and yet, the way he reveals himself in and among us is through vulnerability. All vulnerable God? <laughs> he did hang on a cross. That's vulnerable. The Almighty, whose name is declared in the heavens, said, I want human beings to understand me by being nailed to a cross by people. Jesus, by the way, quotes verse 2. In Matthew 21, when the Pharisees come up to him, and I'm sorry, not the Pharisees, but the religious leaders in the temple come up to him and say, how dare you flip over tables in here? 
Oh, that's not what, I'm sorry. They, they said that, but then, th- this is what provoked it. Then Jesus has the children coming in and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's when they say, how dare you let the babies talk to you that way. And Jesus is like, uh, haven't you read Psalm 8? That out of the mouth of babies, you've perfected praise. And so he puts them in their place. God is surprising. Verse 3. So there's this progression in the psalm, okay? We started with God, his grandeur, and yet his surprising vulnerability, verse 1 and 2. Now in verse 3 and 4, it goes from God to the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. That, by the way, work of your fingers, shows just how intricate this work is. And it's not even the strongest, the hand! It's the fingers. If the fingers can put the cosmos together... What happens when he rolls up his sleeves? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Or it can read, the Hebrew uh, can read visit, like the New King James says, which is interesting because God did visit us, didn't he? Through Jesus. But there are the ideas, what what are we that you would take any time for us? So the heavens are creating this question. And yet, verse 5. So from God to the heavens, now verse 5 and 6, we're now going down to humanity. And yet, you have made him, the human, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Okay, Hebrew word here for heavenly beings is Elohim. Now, if you've been around for some time, you know that Elohim is the title for God. It is God, or it could be judge, or it could be prince, or it could be ruler. Elohim is the plural form. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Here we have, you have made humanity a little lower than the Elohim. So, how do you translate that? Do you take it literally to say God's, plural? Or are we taking this to just be God's, perhaps, Trinitarian title for himself? You've made us a little lower than God? Those are good questions. So, what happened is, about 200 years before Jesus... When Greek became the language of the world, the Jews decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek. Today we call it the Septuagint. The Septuagint translates this into the Greek as angels. So it says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. So, some of you are reading right now in your Bible, for example, New Living Translation, New American Standard Bible are all reading, you have made him a little lower than God. If you have the NIV or the New King James Version, you're reading, you have made him a little lower than the angels. Which is it? Well, I just showed you that the language doesn't help us much. So, the English Standard, which I'm reading from, compromises in the middle and says, you've made us lower than the heavenly beings. God, angels, whatever. (laughs) We're just lower than the celestial heavenly beings. Now, just to clear that up, if you're confused on which is which, um, the point is, the point of the psalm here is that God has made us higher than everything except God and perhaps the angels. We are up there in the crown of his creation. And that's what it goes on to say. He crowned us crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Friends, there's a lot of language here about our power and royalty, which is sort of mind-boggling, and we'll get into this in just a moment. But here he's saying, we're just barely lower than God and the angels. We're crowned. We have dominion, that's rulership, 
over the works of God's hands, and he's put all things under our feet. How come I don't feel like that? How come I feel like I'm under everyone and everything else's feet? How come we're at the mercy of hurricanes down in the south? How come the whole west is lit up with fire? How come we're at the mercy of cavities? How come we're at the mercy of disease and coronavirus? And how come we can't even keep... How come I can't make plants grow, even succulents? How come we have zero control over the creation? Right? That's how we feel. Okay, so let's finish the psalm. We're going to come right back to that because that's clearly the heart here. So God, the psalm begins with looking at God, then looking at his heavens, then looking at humanity, and now it moves all the way down to creation. Verse 7 and 8. So you put all things under his feet. What things? All sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So we're in charge of creation. Then it closes, the way it begins. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who am I? This psalm blows our minds. Well, let's start with this. You're a little lower than the heavenly beings. You're crowned with glory and honor. You have dominion over all the works of God's hands. And oh, he's put everything under your feet. Really? Huh. Okay. So where does David get all this? Go to Psalm chapter 1. Uh, no, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. He is taking much of the language of Genesis and putting it into this psalm. So we know that David is praying, looking at the heavens, and he's thinking about the creation account. Okay? So that's why we're going to Genesis 1. Now while you find Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible, we'll recap it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over the course of the first five days... We are told that it is good. Everything he's making is good. It's original blessing, right? God's abundance is being poured out and it's good. Day six rolls around in verse 20. No, that's, I'm sorry, in in verse 24. Now, I want you, before I start verse 24, I want you to notice, maybe you can even measure with your fingers, But the distance from verse 1 to verse 24, and then the distance from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. They're about the same. If not, verse 1 through verse 23 are slightly longer than the rest of the chapter, right? You guys seeing that? Okay, here's what I want you to see. Verse 24 is the beginning of day 6. That means day six gets just as much page time as days one through five combined. So tip off number one that this is big in ancient days when you're writing on tablets or parchment that are very expensive. Using up space is a huge indicator that this is big stuff. What we just do today is we just use all capital letters That's the way our president likes to tweet. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, All capital letters, this is big! Or you use bold font type, or you just blow it up in a bigger font, or you put italics or exclamation points. Well, they didn't have all that back then. So what you do is you just get really wordy. That means this is important. For example, what is important to God? The fact that he created the stars, or the fact that Israel has a tabernacle through which to meet him and worship him? The tabernacle. That's why there's 25 chapters devoted to the tabernacle in Exodus and three words to the stars in Genesis 1. Emphasis, right? So here we go. Day 6, we're hitting big stuff. This is the climax. In other words, creation has been God laying a banquet. He set the table. He's prepped the food. It's all laid out. And now he brings the point of it all into the room. Verse 24. And God said, um, let the earth bring forth living creatures. So here the animals are made. But verse 26 is where we hit the real jackpot. Still in today's six. Then God said, 26. Then God said, 
let us make man in our image. So you've heard this so much. Human being made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. What does it even mean? I remember back when I was a kid, there was like all this like conversation. So does God have a nose? Does God have arms? Does God walk around on two feet? Is that what the image is? I would beg that the Psalm answer, or the, that Genesis answers this for us. Keep reading with me. Let us make man in our image. What does that mean? It means after our likeness. So the image is a likeness. Is the likeness in form or is, in, or is the likeness in function, in what you do? The next sentence answers that. And let them have dominion. That's what David said. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. You can, see, you can hear someone in the heavenly court say, what does that mean exactly? It says, they're going to rule over all of it. And then there's a gasp. <gasps> can we trust them? Eh, we'll see. <laughs> we know how that goes. Let them have dominion. And now here's the things David said that he's put under our feet. Dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So then, to emphasize the importance, verse 27 is a poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So, the man and the woman, ruling over the creation together, is the image of God. And, verse 28, God blessed them. He didn't curse us. He didn't say, you cursed sinners, you rebels. He blessed them. This is like a king giving a servant his authority over the realm, a realm of his kingdom. Rise, blessed one, empowered one. You are knighted with my authority. Go. And he blessed them. And God said to them, this is the, this is um, often called the uh, creation commission. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Here we go again. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wanted us to join with him in governing in ruling his creation. Now, you might think, well, what happened? We rule over hardly anything. We struggle to get food. We struggle to keep the world healthy. We've been in a constant battle with creation for eons. What happened is, when God, it said in, Gen, in, Gen, in, in Psalm 8, when it said that God crowned us with glory and honor, we took that crown when the serpent said, Here, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We took that crown off to reach for that fruit. And we've never been able to pick it up again. It's been too heavy for us. And so the dark forces have overtaken the creation. And that's why there's a struggle. And now you can look at sin is essentially, there's a lot of other things and ways to talk about sin, but one way to look at sin is essentially the inability to master the things in our lives. As an extreme example, a sex offender has let sex master them. Their impulses tell them what to do. This is far from the image of God. And that's why sin dehumanizes us. That's why sin turns us into beasts. Is because it strips his image out of us bit by bit. Now... Why don't you jump over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is in the New Testament. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Um, find Hebrews, James, first and second Peter. So towards the back. If you hit Revelation, go left a few pages, you'll find Hebrews. Hebrews 2. We're going to start in verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, because it has been testified somewhere. You can just write down Psalm 8. It's been testified in Psalm 8, because now Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So there Hebrews is quoting the Greek version of what we just read in Psalm 8. Same psalm. Now what does he say about it? He says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that's humanity, he, God, left nothing outside humanity's control. Nothing? By subjecting everything under our feet, God left nothing outside of our control? Reality check. I don't experience that. Well, he gets you. He says, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, humans. Well, duh. (laughs) You pointed out the obvious there, right? Everything's not in subjection to us. But, in verse 9, but we see him, Jesus. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's his incarnation. That's his becoming a man. He was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, And crowned, here's another quote from our psalm, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What is, what is happening there? Hebrews is preaching a little mini sermon here on our psalm and says, look, yeah, God's given everything to us, but we don't really experience that right now because we are in the fallen age. But in the age to come, in the age to come, we will see that happen. And we have guarantee of it because when Jesus came and stood in our shoes, we saw a completely different story. We saw him crowned with glory and honor. How was he crowned with glory and honor? When he was crucified on the cross, which is exactly what Psalm 8-2 had told us, that God is perfected his strength in children. Jesus being on the cross is seemingly weak, but that's how he perfected his glory. And on the cross, he broke the powers that are now ruling the cosmos. They, he broke the powers because the power said, all right, we'll unleash all of it on the Son of God. They did, and he took it, and then he rose from the dead, showing that they're impotent. His life in the resurrection has triumphed over the death of the present age. So we know that this age is broken, and it's limping to the finish line when we will finally see his return and the new age to come. And then we'll say, yes, everything is subjected under the feet of humans. And as a guarantee of what's to come. Yes, the resurrection is that. It's a preview of what God will do to us. He will raise our bodies like he raised Christ's. We will be raised like him. And Jesus could walk through walls, by the way, when he was raised. And he could eat. Really good news, too. Philippians 3 says that we will have bodies just like his. So it's a preview of what's to come. We will be resurrected. We believe that the creation will be resurrected. And Jesus on the earth as the unfallen one, as the one still carrying the original blessing without the original sin, he had all things under his feet. The waves couldn't tell him, though. He walked on them under his feet, literally. The windstorm couldn't tell him, no. It shut up when he said silent. The demons couldn't say no. They screamed and begged and ran away when he said get out from the demon-possessed man. 
Disease couldn't say no, for it fled and he healed the lepers. The donkey that had never been broken in could not be ridden into a boisterous, noisy, celebratory, almost nearly riotous crowd. Yet Jesus said, I'm going to ride you into this crowd anyways. And the donkey said, okay, master. And death couldn't say no to him, for he was raised. Jesus lived what we are hoping to receive in the age to come. In the new heaven and the new earth. He showed us on earth what it looks like to be made in the image of God. Okay. You can also look at, if you want in your own time, you can look at Romans 8, talks about creation, waiting desperately for our deliverance when God comes back so that it can be delivered. So the creation right now is under oppression, but it will one day be freed and we will see it glorified just as we will be glorified and we will be able to rule over it properly and take care of it and bring its potential and its beauty and its glory out of it. We're going to see all of that. But, but, back to our question in Psalm 8. Where does prayer lead? It leads us not only to the wonder of who God is, but it tells us who we are. That we are infinitely more than we ever thought possible. We're not barely more than monkeys. We're barely less than the heavenly beings. That's a completely different story. We see what we will be in the future as Revelation tells us three times that we are going to reign with Christ over the earth. We see what's to come. And we see that in this psalm, it's declaring the new creation to come. And it's going to look like the way God originally created everything before sin. The new creation to come is where prayer leads. David's running and praying and desperate and saying, God, help me. It leads us to Psalm 8. It leads us to this vision of new creation with Christ at the head of it. When I am on the run, when I choose to pray and praise, when I would rather... uh, plot and panic and and complain and go crazy and punch things and when i when i choose prayer and praise instead i am making the choice to join in the new creation when i lose control of what's going on or any comprehension of what's happening when i like david choose to take the crown off and let absalom do what absalom does and let him run his course to the end when i like david choose to relinquish control to surrender to like christ go downward in mobility and to move away from power and to let the powers of wickedness have their day when i choose suffering when i choose confusion when i choose to just trust God, when I choose to follow him into the valley of the shadow of death, I am making a step from old creation to new creation. And every time I choose to not have an iron grasp over everything, to not just vent my fury and my anger and throw some fists with my words or my literal hands, when I relinquish the crown, I am joining Christ in his death and resurrection. What does this strange season in these days mean for us today? I think God is inviting all of us into a moment when we can choose to let go. To say, we are done trying to rule the country through our political parties. We are done trying to be the popular Christians. We are done thinking we've got the world figured out and God figured out. We are done. We are going to sit here and simply gaze at the greatness of God and let him absorb us. Because when we choose to be lost in that mystery, when we choose to say, I don't know everything about him. The life is not in my hands. When we choose to go through that unknown and to go into that form of suffering, we are being crucified with Christ and we will be raised with him. Every time we choose to let go, we are giving permission for this eternal flow, rhythm, and dance of the Trinity of God that poured into creation, we're giving permission for him to pour into us. This is how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that, Behold, you are a new creation in Christ. The old things have gone, the new things have come. 
And it's not just that the new things have pushed the old things out. It's that we've had to let go of the old things. And you and I will never, ever let go of our comfort, of our security, of our knowledge of things, unless we have to. Because we always want status quo. We resist change. We want safety. And maybe God is inviting his people right now into a time where we let go of all of that and say, work your new creation in me. Work your new creation in me. We can't rule the age to come if we can't figure out how to surrender to the king in the age that's present. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6. He calls the church out and says, you guys are pathetic. You are going to courts to solve your differences. Why don't you solve it amongst yourselves? Why don't you choose to be wronged rather than to be right? In other words, why don't you choose the way of Christ on the cross? Then he, he throws this at them and says, don't you know? We will judge angels. Now, all of us read that and say, I wish Paul would elaborate on that. But here's Paul. He knows all the Bible. It just kind of spills out of him, right? Here we're piecing it together. Yes, we are going to judge even the angels, Paul says. We're going to rule. We're going to be with Christ, equal with him on his throne. It's crazy. That's what adoption means. We are co-heirs, Romans 8 says. That means we, in God's eyes, are made equal with his son. The kingdom will be given to us and him. We will be partners, ruling as it always was meant to be. And the question for us now is, how are we doing with that? Am we living as if we're going to rule with Christ? Or are we continually letting our emotions get the best of us and people get the best of us and situations get the best of us? We're looking at a place where no crowns go. You don't get to Psalm 8 by being in charge. You don't get to Psalm 8 by holding on. You don't get to Psalm 8 by demanding answers. You don't get to Psalm 8 by choosing a side and being angry. You don't get to Psalm 8 by demanding everybody else chooses your side too. You get to Psalm 8 when you understand the large love of God and that you, every time you surrender to Him and you suffer with Him, that you begin to see Him a little bit bigger each time. That's how we get there. This is a new creation. Guys, we're not trying to improve the old creation. We're not rearranging chairs on the Titanic. We're thinking about something completely beyond that. Let's not sit around and try to rearrange the deck chairs of this world. We are trying to let God work in us a new, a new creature. You and I are becoming a new type of human. He's working his spirit in us. As C.S. Lewis says, he hasn't given us commands so that we can be like the horse that jumps at the right time. Oh, good little horsey, you can jump a fence. Lewis is like, that's pathetic, that's religion. What God is trying to do with us is he's trying to make us into different types of creatures altogether. Not horses that jump higher or farther, but horses with wings that can fly as far as they want. We're not mere mortals. We're not mere humans. We're not barely more than monkeys. There is so much that God has in store for us and we must get our eyes back on him. If we want to grow up, we have to look up as David does in this psalm. It's not by looking down. If we look down and we keep looking around, we're going to keep putting things down and we're going to keep cycling the same revenge stories around, the same confusion around. We need to look up because where your eyes are set is where you will grow. If we look up, we will grow up. And that's what Psalm 8 does. Look at this. Look at this. God, heavens, humanity, creation. So, mirror, mirror on the wall. Don't look at the mirror. Prayer, prayer on the wall. Prayer is our mirror. Prayer is when we look at God and God reflects back to us. My people whom I redeemed from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, who will rule and reign over the earth with Christ. That's Revelation 5. That's what we see. Prayer, prayer, we look at God, and God pours upon us, accepted, beloved, justified, at one with me. 
prayer, prayer, and we look at God and he shows us Christ on the cross and says, that's how you used to be. You used to crucify people. You crucified me. But now, Jesus coming out of the tomb, this is who you are. We are resurrected for the new age to come. Prayer, prayer. We look upon God. And this is what prayer at its simplest, truest form is. Is it's me looking at God and God looking at me in loving union. Just as the Trinity has been doing from eternity past to eternity future. There is a cycle of love and glory being exchanged. Me giving it to God. God pouring it back out onto me. And for the first time, prayer shows me in this mirror, the mirror of prayer, it shows me I'm enough. I don't have to keep running to be better. I don't have to keep trying to make myself somebody and hurting people along the way and doing going one bridge too far as I'm trying to progress. The mirror of prayer says, I love you. You are originally and eternally blessed. This is where prayer leads. We should be, and I think we will be, if you guys continue to commit with me to prayer and praise, as so many are starting to share the stories of transformation through prayer and praise, if we continue to commit to this, we will be, we will be people who are not clamoring for attention or adoration because we are already getting it mirrored to us from the Father. We'll be leaders. And I don't just mean boisterous, loud leaders who tweet every opinion about everything. I mean leaders who just by existing draw people's curiosity. There's stability in that person. There's peace in this presence. So let's gaze upon our Father in prayer and stop looking for a reflection in the world. Lord, we gaze upon you now and we ask as we come.